This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by the Channel 42 News. The Channel 42 News. Don't worry, everything's gonna be okay. And one day, we're gonna be back. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. It's Nightmare Week on Pod Cemetery with 1985's A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge, and documentary horror, The Nightmare from 2015 on Netflix now. But before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. Give me what you got. In 2002's Signs... What kind of headgear does the son of the protagonist, Graham Hess, believe protects against alien waves? Tinfoil hats. That's right. Yeah. All right, Kelsey, going into our next movie. Who directed A Nightmare on Elm Street, 1984? Wes Craven. That is correct. I thought you were going to be for this one. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I can tell you. First movie up is A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, directed by Jack Shoulder, written by David Chaskin, with characters created by Wes Craven, and starring Robert Englund, Mark Patton, and Kim Myers. What is A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, all about? A teenage boy has moved into the old home where Nancy used to live. Yep. And Freddy... Having killed off all the kids of Elm Street, basically, (laughs) needs a new way to terrorize children. Yeah. And he finds that by entering the body of this new boy. Should people watch this? Yes. You think? I love the whole Freddy series. Yeah, it is. If you guys, it's been a while since we talked about it, but A Nightmare on Elm Street is probably our favorite horror movie franchise. Has been for a long time. We've watched the whole thing, every single one of them, and we're going to make our way back through it again. This, however, is probably the redheaded stepchild of the series. Listen, there's some bad movies in the franchise. Not necessarily saying this is a bad movie, but it's the one that stands out from the rest as being most unlike the rest of the franchise. Kind of like Halloween 3. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, and I would tell you definitely watch Halloween 3. <laughs> so there you go. That's but this the one, one we're watching this Halloween. It is. Yes. So this one is very like it's the second movie in the franchise. They hadn't established which characteristics in the first movie were going to become Freddy's staples yet. And then by releasing this one, we found out which ones we didn't want to be Freddy's staples. Ouch. Things like He comes into the real world. Yes. He actually possesses children. Yes. And terrorizes them. And can make things move. Yeah. And so 
after this, they don't do anything like that ever again. No. And they talk about, you know, like bringing him into the real world. Like that's what happened in the first one, right? So they they ramped it up in this one and then they're like, oh, no, 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 says the public. <laughs> we do not like that. And so that's in this movie. But that does not mean this movie is necessarily a bad movie. We'll talk about how we feel at the end. But you can take our advice or leave it. And when we get back, we'll talk about 1985's A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. Someone is coming back to Elm Street. He is not friendly. He is not patient. Kill for me! And he is not a welcome visitor. But he has something terribly special for the new kid on the block. It started to happen again. You've had some scary dreams, okay? Help! Daddy can't help you now. There's something inside him. Fight him! You are not afraid of him. He doesn't even exist. Freddy Krueger is back on Elm Street. Get out of here, Lisa! Jesse, fight him! Watch out for him. We'll be in your neighborhood soon. You are all my children now. A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 2. You've got the body here. I've got the brain. Freddy's Revenge. (laughs) All right, Kelsey. How does the movie get started? Our main character, Jesse Walsh, played by Mark Patton, is sitting on a school bus on his way home. Looking pretty disheveled. Yeah, he, uh, he's he got his hair like really slicked, kind of like that character from Little Rascals, the one that has the thing. Alfalfa? Points. Yeah, he's kind of like Alfalfa. He's all sickly and pale and wearing nerdy clothes. And dark bags under his eyes. And-, and these girls are like laughing at him and... They're on this bus drive. It's the last three kids left on the bus, and the driver goes off into the desert. Yeah, which looks like Joshua Tree. I'm not certain. But it did Wasn't look able a to lot confirm like it, but it looks like Joshua Tree out here in California. Which you certainly would not be allowed to do that anymore. <laughs> Depends on your timing, because when the government shut down and all the national parks were not paying rangers, people fucking trashed Joshua Tree. And it sucked. That's terrible. Yeah, it is. Because those trees are, like, dying out, right? There's not a lot of places you can find them. That's why the location is named after it. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we find out the name of the town that they're in because of the bus. Did you know it was called Springwood? Springwood, Indiana. Indiana, yeah. had no idea that's where they were. I think they make more of a point of it later on, and I'm sure they said it in the first one possible so the driver ends up being of course freddie and if you know robert england then you knew it was him from the get-go because you see him a couple of times yeah him without the makeup he is the bus driver until he turns into freddie which is a nice little cameo on his part yes i gotta say as soon as it's a long shot that starts this movie a bus turns a corner and then heads down this residential street as soon as that happens i'm like yes i'm watching nightmare Mm 2 like it just gets me right in the mood to watch this and i know i like i'm put in that space and i think it's very effective once you've seen it already just when it starts you're like i know what movie i'm watching 
Oh, and I don't want to skip the fact that they decided to change the font and the colors for the for the intro. And it's really hard to read. It's it really is. hard to look at. It's to see Nightmare. It's we have the the digital versions. We have we have the entire series already. And when it says Nightmare across the screen, it fills up the whole screen. And there's it's all neon, and it's hard kind of like this pulsing read out of the letters and you re- it's really difficult to make out what it says if you didn't know it already. So anyway, they're out in the middle of the desert and the the ground starts to crumble underneath them. Yeah. And they eventually they get put over like a crevice, basically like leading down into hell. Yeah. And they they get stuck on these two tall pillars of of dirt and rock. And they realize that Freddy is coming after them and pushing them on the end, which is going to topple them over. Yeah. And they do the knives on the steel again. Yeah. The uh screeching sound. They do that throughout the movie, just like they did in the first one. And right as they're about to either be attacked by Freddy or fall, he wakes up screaming. And they cut to the breakfast table in his house where his mom, his dad, and his little sister are. And his little sister is eating a cereal called Fu Man Chews. <laughs> as in chewing. With Fu Man fingers. With Fu Man fingers. Okay, so Fu Manchu is an old literary character that is just this, this creepy villainous Asian man, and they ended up naming a mustache style after him. It's the kind that that it's the mustache that hangs down on both ends. And And it's really thin. Yeah, and Apparently, in this universe, there's a cereal named after him. The prize in the box are these little fingers that you put on the end. The character really only has one on his index finger, but they give you four. So you have a whole hand of claws. And so when Jesse sees it, he's like, (laughs) but when he screams, he shrieks like a scream queen. Mommy? Why can't Jesse wake up like everybody else? Oh, honey, he's all right. He's just having a bad dream. We'll get into all the gay stuff in the movie, probably at the end, when we can talk about the whole movie in context. But this is like part one of that. This is instance number one. He screams like a like a, like a classic scream queen would and wakes up in a sweat completely topless. This is part one in... The homoerotic undertones of Freddy's revenge. But he comes down to breakfast. I'd like to point out that his family is eating tomatoes for breakfast. Yeah, she's like slicing tomatoes. We do not live in England. We don't eat English breakfasts. Not a fan of the English breakfast. We, when we went, breakfast. you English people are you, insane. You get like half a whole tomato and some cold beans. <laughs> so they just moved into this place. And he's explaining that it's really hot up there, so he's having a lot of trouble sleeping. And, yeah, the mom's like, yeah, why haven't you fixed the air conditioner yet? And I'd like to point out that before they said that, the father was giving him shit for not unpacking. Yeah. And it's like, meanwhile, hey, are you going to fix the, the, like, he's yelling at his son for being lazy. Yeah, and he's procrastinating on fixing the air conditioning. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Really. I hate the dad in this movie. He fucking sucks. Yeah, he does. He's a fucking asshole. His mom tries to get him to eat breakfast, and he's like, I can't. I gotta take my new girlfriend to school. Not girlfriend. Right. Just girlfriend. Who they're both interested in each other. It's just taking them a long time to do anything because... 
We'll get to that. (laughs) So he is taking her to school. When they get there, she's like, you know, aren't you going to lock your car? And he's like, who would want to steal my old piece of junk, right? Yeah. Don't you ever use a key? Why? Somebody could steal your car, couldn't they? The deadly dinosaur. (laughs) (laughs) And he's actually a very good looking kid. Which is interesting when you consider the fact that he looked so bad all right. in his dream. Yeah, it's it's very obvious that in his dream, they intentionally made him look worse than he does in the rest of the movie. And I think that it's just a small nod to dreams usually show us our fears, our vulnerabilities. If you subscribe to that, sure. And so, like... Him dreaming about himself looking that way. Probably how he feels about himself. Yes, he's got personal issues with his appearance and how people perceive him Uh and how people see him, you know. Yeah. So he's in PE and this boy has decided that they're going to become friends. But the way that this boy becomes friends with other boys is through... Oh, wrestle and yeah. punching and gra- aggression. And the other, like, our main kid is like, do you not like me for some reason? He's like, nah, dude. Just playing with you. <laughs> like, that's how men Bunch are Bunch of guys to wrestling around. Yes. With their bare asses hanging out. <laughs> yes. But they get caught by the, the PE teacher. And he has them. Chris thinks that he, they're supposed to be doing... Sit-ups. Well, they're either... No, sit-ups. Um, push-ups. They're either doing push-ups or they're planking. I think they're supposed to be planking. But usually when you plank, you plank on your elbows, not on your hands. What difference does it make? Because it's about strengthening your core, not your arms. Maybe this way it gets both. I don't anyway. to tell you. But yeah, and there's a lot going on with this PE teacher. So, like, for example, when he tells them to get... To, to do that, he doesn't tell them what to do. He says, assume the position. Yep, mm-hmm. While they're doing this planking thing, the other boy tells him that guy goes to gay clubs. S&M clubs, yeah. Queer S&M joints, and that he likes pretty boys like you. Mm-hmm. I don't know why he's being punished, considering he's not the one who started the fight. Right, he just got hit in the head with a baseball because yeah. he was staring at a girl, by the way. Uh- But yeah, and then during this interaction, they get to know each other, and he finds out where he lives, and he's like, oh, does your dad know that he bought a house where a girl went crazy after watching her boyfriend get murdered across the street? (laughs) He's just like, no, I had no idea. You tell me you moved into that big white house with the bars in the window? Yeah, what about it? Shit, you can tell your old man he's a real chump. What are you talking about now, Grady? Some chick was locked in there by her mother and she went crazy. She watched her boyfriend get butchered across the street by some maniac. You're full of shit, Grady. Mm -hmm. And when he brings that up with his family later, it really upsets his sister. And the dad says to the mom, how do you think we got it for so cheap? And the mom's like, oh, they're just joking Mm -hmm. (laughs) to the little sister because she's really starting to get scared because of it. So then he has another dream. Where Freddy confronts him. So Freddy's not really trying to hurt him, really. He's trying to talk to him. But the only way Freddy can do that is by frightening you. So 
he leads him basically in his dream to like the boiler room and shows him the glove. And Freddy is like, hey, you've got the body. I've got the brain. I need you, Jesse. We got special work to do here, you and me. You've got the body. I've got the brain. Which is a very famous line from this movie in particular, yeah. And it's in the song, too. He grabbed me by my neck and said, Here's what we'll do. We got a lot of work here. Me and you. The souls of your friends, you and I will claim. You've got the body, and I've got the brain. You've got the body, and I've got the brain. Yeah, because it was so bad. I mean, Nightmare on My Street didn't come out until like 88 or 89, many years after this movie came out, and it was still famous enough that they included that as a catchphrase of Freddy's in the song. Yeah, And he's terrified, but he wakes up, goes to school, and he's in anatomy class, and the anatomy teacher has like a real heart, which is bullshit. Yeah, just flops a heart on the table. Yeah. But it's a like a cow's heart or something like that. Yeah. It's not a human heart. So our main character falls asleep and somehow... Gets during, a snake around him. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think the implication is that his friend saw that he was asleep and put the snake on him. But we don't see any of that. None of that. And how the teacher wouldn't see a dude going, getting up, crossing the room, getting the boa uh-huh. constrictor out of the cage and putting it on a dude. I don't know how that so happened. I think the implication is not necessarily. I think that's what the class is supposed to assume. I don't think the movie is trying to get you to. Assume, I think the movie is trying to get you to assume that something sinister just happened but again it's freddy affecting the real waking world because he was asleep he fell asleep and then he wakes up and he screams oh no because there's a snake on him and then the teacher gets pissed off at him for taking the snake out of the terrarium like what you think he just screamed out in terror also who has a boa (laughs) constrictor at a high school yeah i had a middle school where a teacher had a bunch of snakes. Yes. As well as feeder mice. I and work, would let the children feed the snakes. That's fucked up. I work at a middle school, and yes, one of our science teachers does have snakes. They are like little garter snakes. Like they're not they're not ones that are gonna hurt you in any way. No, no, these are a well, boa constrictor can fucking kill you. It's a smaller boa constrictor. It's not huge. It it would have been fine. You can pry it apart with your hands a, a boa constrictor of that size. It's made for smaller animals. So he goes home and he asks the girl out. But before he can go, his father tells him, you better get that room unpacked. (laughs) So he goes up there and we get a scene where he's dancing around. Shaking his butt and simulating masturbation. Like one of those pop things it's like a pop gun yeah uh-huh and then he climaxes by popping the gun right, right as his mom and the girl wall burst in and they're giggling to each other about him being so silly and she helps him clean his room yes and while she's there she finds heather langenkamp's old diary and it basically walks them through her falling for johnny depp and then getting these nightmares, identifying Freddy, thinking that he's coming into the real world. And eventually, she, separately, f- 
finds an entry about how she got rid of him. I'm really curious as to why this new this girl doesn't know anything about it. Right? Why does the friend know all about Nancy, but the girl who lives on her street doesn't? Now, she does say that was before my time, so perhaps the idea is that she moved in after it happened because this there's been a five-year gap here. Yeah, so here's the timeline. This movie was made in 85. That's the IMDb credited year, but it came out, I think, in 86. At very least, it takes place in 86. And even though the original came out in 84, it takes place in 81 because that's when Craven wrote it. So there's the timeline. First one, 81. The second one, 86. So, yeah, perhaps that's what they're saying. Oh, she she didn't live here when it happened. But how has she not heard about it? Right. The guy meets one dude in one day and hears all about the crazy happenings of his street. Yes. And she lives on that street and she's never heard anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. So then he again has another sleep about Freddy. And again, Freddy is trying to communicate with him. And he tells our kid to put on the glove. He says, try it on for size. Kill for me. <laughs> Go ahead, Jesse. Try it on for size. Kill for me. Then again at school, they have another incident with the teacher where they're in the locker room and they think they're alone and they're talking about how the guy, the teacher always has to stick up his ass. Again, another gay joke. Yeah. And again, he hears them and forces them to plank again. Yep. That night in his home. They introduce for the first time that they have parakeets. Yes. And they're putting the parakeets to bed. I think we might bed. have seen them in an earlier shot. Maybe. Putting the parakeets to bed by throwing a cloth over the cage. Do you know why they do that? Birds can't sleep in the daytime? Yeah, birds are dumb, and they think it's nighttime, and so they go to sleep. But why would you do that if it wasn't nighttime? Well, you have lights on in the house. Hmm. So if there are lights on in the house, the birds just think it's daytime the whole time, and they never get to sleep. I know. So that's why people throw those covers over cages. It's to give the birds some sleepy time. Oh, with your babies. Yeah. But I want a birdie. The, I know you too. But these don't go to sleep. They start chirping and chirping. And they've been talking this whole time about how it's 95 degrees in the house because the air conditioning still isn't working. But the birds don't shut up and they start freaking out. And so our guy, Jesse, tears the sheet off and opens the cage to see if they're all right and one of them falls down dead killed by the other one yeah he's and, like pecking at it yeah and and then that one flies out of the cage and just starts flapping around and then uh, periodically like attacking them and the dad's got a broom trying to take it down and he's crushing all their lamps and stuff like that in the process of trying to kill this bird until suddenly the bird just fucking explodes <laughs> and then they almost never talk about it again. Yeah, I don't know what that's supposed to symbolize. It's the supernatural heat of hell and sim symbolizing the fire that Freddy was burned in. I guess. Yes, this is but... very odd. Yeah, after the fact, retroactively or retrospectively, the filmmakers, they cut down that scene a lot. It was supposed to be like a demon bird. 
they had a puppet made for it and everything. Uh And then they pulled that back because they're like, this is a little too silly. Uh And so they pulled that back a little bit. And now we just have a scene with the bird exploding. Mm -hmm. It makes no sense. Yeah, but then it, 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 it lends itself to the theme of the heats of the flame. So that night, a very strange thing happens. And I... I really want to talk to you about this. Do you think, okay, he wakes up, walks across town, and goes to a bar. Is he supposed to be sleepwalking? Yes. Is he supposed to be conscious? Partially conscious, maybe. I think he's in a dream. I think he's sleeping. And that's how Freddy is controlling him is because he's asleep. So Freddy is controlling him, you think? Yes. Freddy specifically wanted him to go to that bar. Yes. Because what what Freddy is what Freddy and Jesse are doing is they're kind of merging into one entity. Yes, and so Freddy's aggression and murderous impulses, mixed with Jesse's hatred of the PE teacher, are creating this behavior where he's seeking the PE teacher out. I don't think it's overt. It's like these impulses taking over again. These homosexual undertones written into the film. Okay. So he goes to this bar and it's, (laughs) I guess it's an eighties. It's a leather, it's a leather bar. Yeah. Yeah. It's what the eighties like consciousness was of what S and M was, I guess. (laughs) Sure. Yes. I can see that. We also get to see Robert Shea, who's the producer of the whole entire series. He's the bartender who gives him the beer. Which that also, I was like, so why would they serve him? Why would they let him in? He's obviously a kid. Because it's the 80s and maybe the laws are, or the uh, the enforcement of the laws are a little lax. I don't know. He's, by the way, Robert Shea apparently is the one who came up with that line, you've got the body, I've got the brains. And while there, he gets stopped by his PE teacher. And I think the implication is that when he gets stopped, he kind of gets woken up. Yes. And he's kind of like, I don't even know where I am right now. Uh And the coach decides to take him back to the school and have him take a shower. Well, I think he makes him run first, I think is the deal. As punishment for trying to drink underage. I guess. It's so bizarre. And then bizarre. he has him hit the shower and he's going to take him home afterwards. Super inappropriate. And so. Super wrong. The coach <laughs> is sitting in his office surrounded by. Naked men on his walls. Yes. And again, in real life, the, the coach is not asleep and neither is Jesse. All the sports equipment kind of comes to life and starts attacking the coach, and now he has a bunch of balls flying at his face. Yes. Well, there goes your social life. <laughs> I'm glad I was going to put that clip in. <laughs> my plastic surgeon doesn't want me doing any activity where balls fly at my nose. Well, there goes your social life. But yeah, the, the nets break, the balls bounce, the cans that have the tennis balls. Just fire the balls out of them. Yeah. Yes. And during all of this... He's just kind of like, this is weird. Yeah. He's not freaking out. I would be. He does kind of scream no. Yeah. At one point, like, as if to say that, no, I don't want this to happen. But he never, like, freaks out because this weird shit is happening. Yeah. Until these jump ropes that he took out for some reason 
attack him. Tie themselves to his hands and drag him into the shower with Jesse. So Which now is when he starts to shout no. Yeah, it's all steamy and everything. And Jesse's still in there. Taking a shower. Taking a shower. All the showers come on. It's a lot like in the 90s it. Yes, yeah. And they string up the coach. Like to be flogged. Uh Uh-huh. And then rip off his pants so his bare ass is hanging out. And then a towel comes to life. And a towel is whipping him repeatedly over and over again on his ass. As if to be like, oh, here's the locker room shenanigans. Now we're using it as torture. But, again. Strong sexual undertones. Yes, Yes, yes. And this is all happening in front of Jesse. And he's just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually Freddy takes over. He turns into Freddy, kills the guy, but then before we, we only see Freddy like for one shot, and then he turns back into Jesse. Jesse. Wearing the glove. Wearing the glove in the and shower. freaking out about what happened. And he goes home. Well, the police oh, the take police him home. the police grab him because he, he's like wandering. Yes, he's nowhere near the school. Uh, He's just out wandering the streets downtown, and the police bring him home, and his dad thinks he's on drugs. I just have two questions. What are you taking, and who gave it to you? He's like, I'm not on drugs, dad. (laughs) But it's like, why would the, I mean, in the dad's defense, why would the dad believe him? Oh, absolutely. No, I, that's not something that I'm upset with the father for. I'm upset Uh with the way the father handles everything else. Yes. Uh, And the mother just assumes he's crazy. Right, and she's more worried, and the like, dad's more angry. we need to get angry. him to a psychiatrist, yeah. and the father just thinks he's a drug addict. So it's at school the next morning when there's a big commotion and a big scene because the coach was found dead. Jesse doesn't tell anybody, but he knows he did it. He has another dream where the glove comes alive, and like just like all uh-huh. those movies where hands come alive. He sees a little girl. This is the only time we get it in this movie. Little girl jumping rope in his house. One, two, Freddy's coming for you. All that. That whole song, which I love. Uh Uh-huh. I want it in every single Freddy movie. But in the morning when he wakes up, another thing that just makes me hate the dad even more, he puts toast in the toaster and the toaster like explodes or catches catches on fire. Yeah. And the father's like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. You saw a bird explode. Yeah. The other night, a bird exploded in midair. To be fair, he might not think it's crazy because he immediately assumes that Jesse put a firecracker in its mouth or something like that. That's true. Like how that would have resulted in the scene you saw, who knows? But he's trying to rationalize that. And he doesn't know how to rationalize the toaster exploding. I hate people who rationalize. (laughs) I hate it. I hate when you have to explain something away. You can do that in your own head. I don't need to listen to your bullshit. I'm probably rationalizing it in my own head. Can I have fun thinking about why a bird just exploded? That doesn't happen. Kelsey and I, Kelsey and I are getting married. Maybe we should call off the wedding. <laughs> I'm the rationalizer. You're so, marrying a rationalizer. You told me. Uh-huh. Uh, you're telling me. Uh-huh. That if a bird exploded in midair, you'd try to find a reason. Yeah. You just assume that your son put a firecracker in I, That mouth? wouldn't be my rationalization, no. No, because that doesn't fit the facts. So what does fit the facts, honey? I don't know. Spontaneous combustion? That doesn't happen! Sure it does. No, it doesn't. Birds explode because they get 
They eat too much rice. I don't know how true this is, but there's also Alka-Seltzer. I'm marrying an insane person. Did you ever hear about this? When you were a kid, about how you put some Alka-Seltzer in some bird seed or whatever, and then the birds eat it, and it's the Alka-Seltzer starts foaming in their mouths, and birds don't have any method of expelling gas, and so they just end up exploding. So they don't have... They can't burp. They can't fart. I don't know if any of that's true. That was just the... That can't be true. It could just be an urban legend that was going around kids at the time. Is that your favorite UL? It's my favorite UL. <laughs> I can't wait to watch Urban Legends. Should we just watch Candyman 2 with Urban Legends? <laughs> I think we should continue. I think we should watch Candyman okay, 2 with okay, Urban Legends. Okay, okay, okay. Go on. This is when his girlfriend lets him know, hey, I did some digging on this Fred Krueger guy. I found uh -huh. out that he worked at a power plant because she's convinced that all it is is a psychic connection. Yeah. Something was left behind from Nancy, which is now infecting him and allowing him to clue into Fred Krueger. It's all she thinks it is. Something must happen there that frightens them away. Why do they leave? They don't find anything. Oh, they just don't find yeah. anything. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. And then that night, Freddie takes him over and gets him to go after his sister, but his love for his sister stops him from actually hurting yeah, her. Yeah, but it terrifies him. And it's after that that he, he eventually says, like, at this point, I'm kind of agreeing with my mom. I think I might be going crazy. But so his girlfriend is having a big party. A pool party at her house. Yes. But, uh. Cue the Aquabats. The dude friend. Grady. Grady. Is his name really Grady? The character's name is Grady. Is it, well, his name is Ron Grady, and so they call him Grady. Played by Robert Russler, who is in Weird Science. Yes. Apparently, apparently, he auditioned for this part the last day of filming for Weird Science, and Robert Downey Jr. is the one that drove him to the audition. Yes, because Robert Downey Jr. and he played the bullies in Weird Science. Yes. And I think that the guy who plays Grady looks a lot like the... Dark-haired, dark-eyed friend from the first one. Yeah. I think they look a lot alike. I don't know why, but when I think of Grady as a character, I think of... The Shining? No. Not just because the name Grady. I do. Hold on. Let me make sure I get his name here. Mr. Grady, you were the caretaker. No, sir. You have always been the caretaker. Delbert Grady. That's right, sir. Miss Grady, weren't you once the caretaker here? Why, no, sir. I don't believe so. Mr. Grady, you were the caretaker here. I recognize you. I saw your picture in the newspapers. Mr. Grady, you were the caretaker here. I'm sorry to differ with you, sir. But you are the caretaker. You've always been the caretaker. I should know, sir. I've always been here. Hey, I like Grady. Mm -hmm. I think of John Stockwell, Dennis from Christine. He's not as, like, 
sappy as Dennis is, but, you know, the popular jock friend of the nerdy main character. Like, that's what I see. I just think, I think he looks a lot like the dude from the first one. Yeah, no, you're right. So imagine those two things mixed and you have Grady. (laughs) So... (laughs) So they ask his friend, Grady, are you coming to the party? And he says no. Do you remember why he can't go? Because he's grounded. Because he threw his grandmother down the stairs. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. That's his reason for not going. So you going to Lisa's house tomorrow night? Nope. Uh, I'm grounded. How come? I threw my grandmother down the flight of stairs. And they don't say anything about it. Everybody's just like, oh. That sounds about right. Uh-huh. <laughs> they don't, they don't even, what? Yeah. <laughs> they don't even mention it. Like, it's nothing. It's a little weird. <laughs> it's really fucking weird. So, at this pool party, the famous pool party, he goes into the cabana with his girlfriend and they're getting it on. They're making out, yes. Until? He's going, he's going downtown and a big Floppy, gray, bumpy tongue. tongue comes out. Yes, very classic Freddy. This yes. is one of the things that translates from movie to movie is, you know, the sexuality is not a thing that doesn't appear in the Freddy movies. Absolutely. Like, and we, we've in the very first movie, the phone licks Heather Langenkamp, He's you know, so there's tongues. this whole tongue thing going on. Mm-hmm. And then there's one of the movies where Freddy turns into a giant penis with a face and starts eating <laughs> the woman. So this disgusting tongue comes out and he freaks out and he's going to leave her, but he doesn't say anything. He literally just walks out on her like in the middle topless. of them making out. He freaks out and he runs off and she's left topless on the ground. Like I can't even imagine how angry and and like embarrassed, embarrassed humiliated. Would, yes. Yeah. He doesn't say a fucking word. He just leaves and goes to his friends to house. his hot guy friend Grady's house but he doesn't just go to his house the he first jumps on him in his jumps bed on him in his bed and he's like something's trying to get inside of me yes mhm he tells him i think i killed schneider the teacher uh-huh he tried to get me to kill my sister and the dude is just like you know what about this what about that and trying to like talk to him about it And the kid's response is pretty great. I don't know. I'm all messed up. What difference does it make? I'm in trouble and I need your help. Yeah. I don't know. I'm all messed up. What difference does it make? I'm in trouble. And I need you to help me. Okay? All right, man. What do you want me to do? Which is sweet. Like, you know, you're you're supposed to be my best friend here. Yeah. And I need help. And he asks him to do the same thing that Nancy asked her boyfriend to do. Which is, you stay awake, I need to go to sleep. And watch me, right? And he says, don't fall asleep. Just watch me. And if anything starts to happen, like I start to act weird, or start dreaming weird, or try to walk out of here, you gotta stop me. I don't care if you have to hit me over the head, just don't let me leave. And Grady... Don't fall asleep. Yes. Just like she does. Another classic thing that would eventually become a trope of the franchise. Yes. But 
he falls asleep and his friend thinks, ah, he's fine and he's about to go to sleep when suddenly he wakes up. Yes. And he's starting to feel really hot and flushed and this feeling is overcoming him sitting there in the bedroom of his guy friends. And these things are coming out of him. Uh-huh. And, like, he's, his stomach is starting to bulge, and eventually Freddy's the, the face comes out. come through his yeah. fingers. Yeah, they come out of his fingertips. He doesn't have the physical glove on him, so he grows the claws. He and is he, transforming. Yes. From and, inside out. And Freddy comes bursting out of Jesse's body, and oh, and we see like the eye at the back of the throat. Yeah, he screams, and there's an eye in the back of his throat, which apparently was a, was a woman's eye. The only person who was small enough to kind of fit into this rig that they had created to look like Jesse. And Grady's freaking out, and he's banging on the door to For get his, his parents to come, and his parents come pounding and on the door as well. Dad? His dad is the dad from. Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller, yeah, which is another John Hughes movie, just like Grady came from Weird Science. And he's banging on the door until eventually they see the claws come out from the, to their side of the door and slash, slash down. And from the inside, we see that Grady has been gutted. And then he turns back into himself. He's no longer Freddy. And it's like, I just killed my best friend. And, like, basically he's being framed for yeah. it. Yeah, he looks in the mirror and he sees Freddy in the mirror laughing back at him. And he's like, oh, God. <laughs> and so he runs back to Lisa's house to get Lisa. Maybe Lisa can help him. And they're inside her house. And he says to Lisa, he's inside me and I'm scared. Yeah. He and, owns me. And she's freaking out. She's trying to get him to fight because I read in the journal that it's your fear that fuels him. It's the screams that give him power. You need to fight against him. And he's like, I don't think I can. Oh, God, he's coming back. And he starts to transform again. And Jesse's too scared to be able to fight against it. And yeah, Freddy comes out and he's like, he can't fight me. I'm him. You created him. You can destroy him. He is living off of your fear. Jesse, fight him! I can't! You can! Fight him! You are not afraid of him. He doesn't even exist. No. Jesse? He can't fight me. I'm here. Yes. So And then we hear out of Freddy's mouth his voice, and he says, Kill me, Lisa, please kill me. Yeah. So he but locks so the parents upstairs. They're she, in their room. But she tries to stab him and it won't go through. Why is Freddy suddenly impenetrable? Because he has superpowers and they don't quite, they haven't quite decided what superpowers he has. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. So then he jumps through a, a window. But he can't, he, can't, he tries to kill Lisa and he can't do it because Jesse won't let Jesse him. Jesse won't let him. Just like Jesse stopped himself from killing his little sister. Yes. And instead he slow motion jumps through this glass window that leads outside and it shatters and, and then, then it disappears. disappears. For no fucking, what the fuck was that about? Yeah, it's very strange. It makes no sense. You're just like, what just happened? And then he pops up. <laughs> Like, why? Yeah, so there, there's the pool party still going on outside, and then the pool starts percolating and steaming, and people are starting to boil inside, and, like, tiki torches catch fire. Let's get it percolating. Yes. Why you waiting, soldiers, this for me? 
the the grill catches fire, and so the dude, I think it's the writer actually, is the one who saves the day in quotes by putting out that fire, and everyone cheers for him. But then the beers start exploding because of all the heat. Yes, and, then, and they're boiling alive yeah. in the pool. This is the famous shot. Oh, it's incredible. With uh, Freddie having his hands up, and there's fire right behind him, and he says the famous line, You're all all my children children now. You are all my children now. It's Which he'll say in part seven again. Robert Englund is incredible in this. He looks so cool. There's even this one scene where he kind of whips his head around and he's standing with his arched back because he'll talk about how when he first created the character of Freddy and how he would move and how he would behave and he wore that hat, he kind of carries himself like a cowboy, you know, with like the hunched shoulders leaning forward a little bit with his neck jutted out. And he kind of swaggers bit. with the weight of the guns on his hips, like, and, and instead it translates to the, the weight of the glove on his hand. That's how he creates the character of Freddy. The other glove effect of me was it's heavy. And when I put it on, one shoulder dropped a bit. And it affected my movement and it affected my posture. And I immediately thought, it's like a holster. It's like a gunslinger's thing. So that posture became signature for Freddy Krueger. You see that in here and you you definitely see that. It's It's kind of awesome. But at the same time, Absolutely fucking ridiculous. (laughs) And so he's starting to slash up all these kids at the pool party and starting to kill all them. So when people try to to grab it, they get get shocked. They get shocked. One guy gets crushed to death. So eventually Lisa and her parents come out and the dad has a shotgun and starts firing at Freddy. That's not what phases him. It's that Lisa's out there. Yeah. And he walks through the fence, burning all the ivy on the fence and has he has like a little outline of fire and he disappears. And everyone's like, oh, God. Oh, thank you for saving us, Mr. Weber. But Lisa, uh, not satisfied because she knows that that is Jesse chases him down to the boiler room of this power plant. But before she can get in, she meets some dogs. That have baby faces on. Which they don't ever focus on because it looks ridiculous. It's so really ridiculous. why just not take it out? And they still sound like Rottweilers and yeah. Uh-huh. It looks really bad. Just take it out. Yeah. Just you recognized it in the shot. And yet you still kept it in. And then she's walking around the boiler room and we've got the knives on the steel. And it's it's very much like Tina's dream in the first film. Yeah. The very beginning of the movie. She imagines, so she gets cut at some point on her leg and like, or her arm. And then she imagines that it's like filled up with bugs and maggots and shit. I think it's her shit. leg. I don't know. Yeah. But so eventually she confronts Freddy and then confesses that she loves Jesse. And but it's still Freddy and Freddy doesn't know quite how to react. And then she kisses him and then he starts freaking out and he falls down on one of these walkways and Tearing then he starts. The skin. Yeah. He starts kind of turning to ash and Jesse comes out from the outside of Freddy. And he is whole again. She has saved Jesse with the power of her love. Basically. Yes. So, back on the bus. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Immediately, we know something's up because the only other time he's in a bus is in the very beginning. So it immediately evokes the beginning of the movie again. Plus, we know he has a car. Yeah. 
But he obviously feels better about himself because in this dream, he looks like he looks in real life. And he's dating her now. Yeah. So, I mean, he's kind of realized, right? Like, he, he, he internally, he sees what everyone else sees externally. He's actualized that internally. So he's worried that the bus is going too fast and he screams for them to stop. And the bus does stop to pick up more kids. And he's like, oh, shit. Okay, no, I was just freaking out. But then sure enough, it drives off into the desert and it's Freddy. And just like the end of the first one. Yeah. And we get. Did you ever see a dream walking? Which really pissed me off. I know this came out before Lady in White, but I'm sorry that song belongs to Lady in White. Yeah, totally. But still, it's fitting. I almost feel like it, it like, because Lady in White came out in like 88. It's like three years later. Or yes, Chris like that. is convinced. I think the- it's entirely reasonable that the people who made Lady in White saw this movie and thought that that was a creepy song to put in a movie. And that's the end of the movie. So, Kelsey, let's talk about. The gay stuff. First of all, this is the only nightmare movie where the main character is a man. Doesn't make it gay, but it is a little telling. David Chaskin, who wrote the movie, now claims that he deliberately included the homoerotic subtext in the script. He is gay himself. The director claims he had no idea. He was too focused on getting this project made. Uh, that he wasn't focusing on any of the subtext or anything like that. Mark Patton says himself, I love when he uses the word subtext. Did you actually go to a freshman English course in high school? This is not subtext. He's saying it's the text. Is that the actor? Yes. Who was also gay himself. Mark Patton was also gay. This movie kind of destroyed Mark Patton for a very long time. He was trying to make it. And in Hollywood, around the time, like, he moved out from the middle America somewhere, didn't have a dime to his name to to act, because he, he really enjoyed acting, and his acting teacher in high school was like, you need to act. And... So he went out there and did it, and one of the things he was realizing is that regardless of how many people in the room were gay, nobody could talk about it. And even if, like, the writers or the agents were actually gay, they would ask him, are you comfortable with people thinking that you're gay? Like, that was always a topic of conversation about how people might think you're gay, and that is a bad thing. And... He kind of internalized that for a long time. But this, because the first nightmare was huge, this was an opportunity he couldn't pass up, even though he recognized that it's kind of gay. So let's let's go through some of the stuff that happens here. Like I said, Jesse wakes up in the beginning just wearing some tidy whities and drenched in sweat. There's the wrestling scene during the baseball game with the dude's ass hanging out. The dance scene in his bedroom, apparently they claim... That it's meant to be an homage to Risky Business, which came out earlier in the decade, where Tom Cruise dances around in his underwear by himself, pretending to be Bob Seger. It's a little different. It's a lot different. (laughs) Especially because the first one is Bob Seger singing old-time rock and roll. And yes, you're supposed to look at Tom Cruise and go, that's a sexy young man in his underwear, right? And this... He's singing a woman's song that you've never heard before. No, it's a, it's a famous song. 
No, it isn't. Yes, it is. I've never heard it. It's touch me all my all night long. Touch me, feel me all night long. Wish is the name of the band that performs it. All night long. All night. All night long. All night long. All night. Patton didn't want to do it, apparently, because he was like, this is, of all the things in this movie, this is pretty gay. <laughs> and and he kept refusing to do it, and so they had to put it off and put it off and put it off. So apparently in Never Sleep Again, we've talked about that when we talked about the first Nightmare movie. It's a documentary series that goes film by film in the Nightmare franchise. They talk about how Patton did his own choreography and they were just like, roll the cameras and you do your own thing. Patton ended up reversing that, saying that, no, that's not the case, actually. Quote, there's nothing I do in that movie that's not written in the script. If you look in the script, it says Jesse bumps his ass against the door three times and gets on the bed and pretends to masturbate. (laughs) It's all written in the script. I did not make that stuff up. But Patton says scenes like that made him really popular at gay clubs. Because, you know, he was, in fact, gay and he would go to clubs. And this movie and its popularity, it had some popularity in the gay subculture and he got popular within that culture as a result. There's the leather slash S&M club, which is identified as a queer club, but there's nothing overtly queer about it. It's just leather. Yeah, it's just leather. Yeah, there are men and women. There are men and men. There are women and women. It's just a club with a bunch of people wearing leather. There's the shower scene, obviously, that we went over. That I that and the dance scene are obviously the most overt moments yeah. where it's like you can't you can't deny it yeah I, I feel like a lot of the things that you say could very easily be like you know dismissed Explained away yeah uh-huh. but the shower scene alone i i don't think anyone would look at that scene and not be like this is like a gay like snm club type thing yes now there's also the concept of something possessing him Dominating his thoughts that is seen as evil. That he wants to get rid of. He can't control it, but Mm -hmm. he feels responsible for it anyway and carries around this intense guilt. Mm -hmm. The coach gets pummeled by balls. He runs from making out with his girlfriend to be with his male friend and jumps directly on top of him and says, something is trying to get inside my body. And Grady says in response, and you want to sleep with me? Mm -hmm. The question is, what does it say then? That the solution to rid Jesse of his evil is the love of a good woman. Mm-hmm. A kiss from her is what kills Freddie. Mm-hmm. Like, does that subvert? Like, what is that saying to young gay people, mm-hmm. men and women? Patton also tells the story that when Freddie does the whole you got the body, I got the brains thing, and he, and he confronts him at the bottom of the stairs. Patton did this interview for BuzzFeed when... He made a documentary called Scream Queen and My Nightmare on Elm Street is the name of this documentary. And I couldn't find it anywhere, so we didn't get a chance to watch it. But he did this interview with BuzzFeed about the movie and but more specifically Patton and what he went through. And I would recommend you read it. It's called The Nightmare Behind the Gayest Horror Film Ever Made. (laughs) And 
he tells the story about how England asked if he could put the blade inside my mouth. And his makeup artist, Danny Mark, said, don't do it. Absolutely not. Don't do it. Don't do it. And so Patton told England, I really don't feel comfortable with that. And England says, okay. But he did the whole like around the mouth instead of like actually going in and out, in and out to simulate oral sex. Mm -hmm. And Patton says if it would have gone in and out, it would have been really not a good thing. It would have been not okay. And would have destroyed him in Hollywood, which is really fucking unfortunate. Patton sees himself as the first male scream queen. I mean, part of that is because, you know, he's the only male lead actor in a nightmare movie. Obviously he also screams like a traditional scream queen would in the film, which we talked about earlier where he describes it as being depicted on screen quote, like a girl. And he, he, he says that the character of Jesse is, it's a metaphor for a closeted gay man. Like that's what all of this amounts to is this is a metaphor of what a closeted gay man goes through. And that leads us back to, like I said earlier, is it damaging then that the solution to all of this is heterosexual love? Does that make what could be a fun sort of like subculture movie, which is kind of what it ended up being? Does that make it harmful at all? Or is that just where the metaphor falls apart and we need to not evaluate it any further? I think that's where the metaphor falls apart, because yeah. if you want to say, oh, it's it's about like being closeted, etc. The problem there is. The audience hates what's inside him. Yeah. It, it's Freddy. Freddy is the bad mm -hmm. guy. Freddy is the evil character. But, so But Freddy was also he was also one of the first villains that people like loved. I understand that. You can't say that it's okay for him to be Freddy. That would not be okay for the movie. So right. that's where the metaphor ends, in but my there, opinion. There, it was like this sort of camp horror movie within the gay culture at the time. And it had a lot of popularity. And, my, and Mark did okay in, you know, hooking up and stuff like that because of this movie. He did okay there. But he never did anything else as big as this ever again. Because it kind of destroyed his career. And it did not help that... David Chaskin, the screenwriter who was gay, for decades denied that there was any intentional gay subtext in the movie and always said that that's what Patton brought to the role. And Patton, as a gay man, all the gay stuff you see, that's him. And that kind of devastated Patton. In his words, quote, this is what he said to BuzzFeed, I don't ever want to be unkind to anybody, but the truth of the matter is Chaskin really did systematically fag bash me for 30 years and it hurt. He sabotaged me and that's why I quit. He did. He quit acting. Nobody ever affected my confidence. The boys that threw rocks at me, nobody. This man did. After the fact, Chaskin's like, hey, I'm sorry if anything I said like caused him any pain or whatever. But he doesn't like the fact that he reverses his decision. And now that people love it as like this gay horror movie. Now he's like, yeah, no, it was totally intentional. Yeah, that was all me, the writer, baby. And Patton, who was the gay man, who was the face of this movie, was thrown under the bus as 
he's what's making this gay, even though Chaskin, a gay man himself, wrote the script and later claimed that it was intentional, would just say, nope, wasn't me, it was all Patton. And then Patton couldn't get any jobs, and ultimately he felt it was a caustic environment, and his mental health was declining, and so he just got out of the industry entirely. And then eventually, 30-some-odd years later, he makes his own documentary about his experiences with the movie called, again, Scream Queen by Nightmare on Elm Street. I'd really like to see that. I think that would be really, really interesting. Me it's, too. It's really unfortunate what it sounds like Patton went through. This could have been very empowering for him, maybe in a different time. I wonder if there are any good gay horror movies now. Like, now that I don't think it would be as damaging if you were a gay actor and out and you had a movie about gay people. It would probably face some resistance, sure. But... I think something like that could be a lot more successful today. And I wonder if anyone's out there doing that. I think it'd be pretty interesting. That's all I really have to say about the gay subtext of the film. And the actual real life gay elements. It's real. It's there. It's not just a thing people say. It, there was a whole drama surrounding that. So, lightning round, Kelsey. I don't have anything. I just have a few things. First of all, David Miller did the effects in the first movie. Kevin Yeager replaced him in this movie and didn't have any of the original makeup, so had to go off of the original film to create his own, and then redesigning it to, to look the way he wanted it to look. You can tell Freddy does look a little different from the original, because Yeager studied pictures of burn victims, and he ended up showing, like, exposed bone and stuff like that. Which yeah, he definitely looks different yeah. than the first one. yeah. Uh, there are a few more comparisons to the first one. That's really all I'll have to say once I'm done with this. Wes Craven did not want to work on this movie. Yeah, he only wanted to do the first one. He, and that was it, yes. He hated that they did the We talked about this. He hated that they did the ending of the first one because he wanted it to be done. Yes. He didn't want to make a series. But Robert Shea, the producer, really pushed the series forward as a franchise because it very much was... What saved New Line Cinema, which was his production company, New Line Cinema is often referred to as the house that Freddie built because Robert Shea kind of wouldn't let it go. And he's like, no, we are making more. And that might have been where his relationship with Wes Craven fell apart. Eventually it would heal. But at the time, Craven was like, I do not want to do more of these. And so he just completely opted out of participating in this one. He also didn't like the idea of Freddie manipulating the, the main character to be the one who commits the murders because this is the only movie in the entire franchise where everyone dies outside of dreams. Nobody dies in a dream. But again, Freddy will do this again. Right. In Freddy versus there's, Jason. There's not a single death inside a dream in this movie, which is what fucking Freddy is. Yeah. But again, this was the second movie and they hadn't necessarily decided on what tropes they would carry on to the franchise. Mm hmm. Nobody really making the movie thought that that pool scene was good. <laughs> they thought it was very silly and they didn't like just how much it shattered the rules. And like, how many people died and how they just like act like it didn't happen. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, like, and it's a bunch of people who are awake. <laughs> like, again, people die outside of dreams, but none of these people are asleep. And they all saw Freddy. Yes. So you can't really deny that Freddy exists anymore. Yeah, they anymore. didn't see Jesse running around. They all saw Freddy. This is also the only film in the series that doesn't have the Nightmare on Elm Street theme in it. There is one, two, Freddy coming for you, the jump rope song. But the 
kind of synth The keyboard sound. synth theme of Nightmare on Elm Street, which is written by Charles Bernstein, doesn't appear in this movie at all. Instead, we get whale sounds. Yes. <laughs> Every time Freddy's around... Amongst the other sort of sounds with the scratching and the pipe sounds and these industrial metal and sharp sounds, we also get something that evokes that same feeling if you don't know what it is. And that's whale cries, whale song. But if you know what it is, it's very obvious and it's very distracting. (laughs) And interestingly. I I think what happened was we were watching it and all of a sudden I turned to you and I was like. Sounds like a whale. And you're like, yeah, they did that. (laughs) It is a whale. And then I couldn't not notice it every time he was Uh on screen. Uh Uh-huh. And finally, this movie grossed twice as much as the original. It was very popular, at least in relation to the first movie. And obviously a lot of that has to do with how popular the first one was. Exactly. Usually when the first one's really popular, the second one will do better. But this one did twice as good in the theater. So it's interesting. This wasn't a flop. At all. But when seen in the entire context of the franchise, it's the one movie that people just reject. There are movies that people forget about, but like Dream Child, for instance. <laughs> but nobody, nobody forgets. Nobody remembers Dream Child. <laughs> but, but nobody forgets about part two. They just reject it as part of the canon. You know, mm-hmm. they just try not to include it as part of the canon because it deviates so much yeah, from I don't, the franchise as a whole. I don't think it has anything to do with the fact that uh, anything to do with the gay subtext. I think no, it has everything to just do with the fact that we want Freddy in dreams. Right. Yeah. That's where he's really interesting. But that's why I find it so fascinating that they did that with Freddy versus Jason, because that's why so many people hated the second one. Yeah. So, Kelsey, what do you think it got on Rotten Tomatoes? 46? 41%. Metacritic of 43, no cinema score. There is no critical consensus on Rotten Tomatoes, but I do have a quote here from Wes Craven from Cinefantastique, which is a movie magazine. He says, quote, I didn't like the second script. I thought it was a silly script. There was not a clear-cut hero who remained intact. Freddy coming out of the hero really violated the viewer's ability to identify with him. I suggested they make the girl across the street the hero. I thought it would have been much wiser to make her the central character. I also thought they brought Freddy much too much into the realm of reality and put him in situations where he was diminished. You want Freddy to always be threatening and overpowering, but when he's running around a swimming pool with a bunch of teenagers who are all bigger than he is, he starts to look really silly. Is he a short dude? He's not that tall. And he's skinny, you know? Like, he's just this kind of... Little guy, you know, he's not like short, but he's not a tall guy. First of all, do you think the 41% Rotten Tomatoes, the 43 Metacritic, do you think that's overrated or underrated? I think it's underrated. I, I agree. What do you, what would you give it? Let me give it a 70. Yeah. I don't mind. I don't, I think it's entertaining. I think it's interesting. I think it's different. And, yeah, I mean, it's not great. It's not a fantastic movie, but I actually enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I don't think you could, I don't think you should watch the franchise and just skip this one, even though you could. Oh, yeah, you totally could. I don't think you should. I think this is part of the Freddy history. And 
if you want to watch the entire series, don't skip this one. Mm-hmm. Yep. Of course, it, I mean, like, look, if I was going to sit down and just, like, just watch the series, I might be a little more excited about three and might consider skipping two because three is... Well, yeah, I mean, three one, and one are the best. One of the is the original, and then three is just fucking incredible. Dream Warriors. Yes, I'm so <laughs> excited when we get to do Dream Warriors. <laughs> but I enjoy two. Yeah. I would pick two over six any day. Dream Warriors! <laughs> Dockin'. All right, that is 1985's A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Freddy's Revenge, originally, by the way, marketed as part two. Now it's just called two. All right, Kelsey, before we get to our next movie, Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. Who directed 1991's The Silence of the Lambs? Jonathan Demme. Very good. Boom. Nice. This one shouldn't be difficult, but I wouldn't be surprised if you have trouble digging out the name. Who directed The Conjuring 2013? One. Yes. What's his first name, though? Do you know? It's not John One. No. Is it Tim One? James One. James One. James One. An Asian director who is, I think, Australian. A fantastic horror movie director. I fucking love James Wan. It's just he creates universes that are very interesting and successful, and then other people take them over and make them fucking shit. (laughs) What is that? I don't like Saw. I like the first movie. Nope. I think it works as a standalone movie, and then they turn it into a fucking franchise. Everybody said, a lot of people say that. A lot of people fucking love the entire series, but a lot of people say the first one is just so good. I don't think it's so good, but I I like it. it. I think it's fine. I don't get it. I don't like what it turned into, just like I don't like what we did with Annabelle and The Nun. There's this, there's a video, it's a YouTube channel called Cordery FX, it's another Australian dude, (laughs) and... He does, he did two videos recently. He did one video called The Nun and Everything Wrong with Modern Horror. He did another movie about Hereditary that says Everything Right with Modern Horror. I only watched that one. I didn't watch the one about The Nun because I kind of want to see The Nun before they ruin it. So he's, yeah, he, he will ruin it for you. But he talks about how the one thing that is in every bad horror movie is the jump scare. And what they don't get right about jump scares. I like jump scares. Wait. Stay away from my jump scares. He breaks down exactly, like, he even recreates a scene of jump scares. Like, he films it, and he edits it, and he makes it, and he tells you exactly the what it is that these Conjuring franchise movies do, the ones that aren't directed by James Wan, what it is that they do to try to fool you into being surprised. But surprise and terror are two completely different things. And what the, the franchise he uses... To show you how jump scares can be effective and well done is Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> and he talks about how with Freddy, the jump scare is always the introduction to a chase. There's the, ah, here I am, I'm Freddy and I'm here and I'm going to cut you. And then there's a chase. In every other bad horror movie, there's just a jump scare and it was really nothing. That I agree with. That I don't like. Yeah, it's supposed to... Be a shocking transition between the tension and the terror. But don't just say that all jump scares are bad. He doesn't. But he tells he he describes how jump scares are misused in bad horror movies. And it's really good. So if you get a chance, the channel is Cordry FX and the video is the nun and everything wrong with modern horror. 
Kelsey, our next film is 2015's The Nightmare, directed by Rodney Asher, the director of Room 237, by the way. What is it about? It is a documentary about, I think it's eight different people. Yeah. Who deal with sleep paralysis. If you don't know what sleep paralysis it is, it's when you are asleep. Your body is asleep and shut down, but your consciousness wakes up. Yeah. But you can't move because the rest of your body is shut down. And because your body thinks you're asleep, you start to have dreams. Like hallucinations and stuff. But yeah. because you're in this tense, afraid state, of course, move. they turn into nightmares. Right. And it just kind of interviews them. It does some dramatic recreations, which Chris did not enjoy. No, they're fine. I thought you hated the one with the ticklers. Oh, it's, it's silly that. in places. Absolutely. Yeah. But they do their best. Yeah. I mean, look, you're, you're never going to be inside that person's mind. Yeah. You're never going to see what they see. And so when they try and, to recreate it, it can be a little bit silly. Yes. And you're not going to have the fear that they have because things mm-hmm. that frighten you aren't necessarily going to frighten other people. There's a lot that's also missing from this, I think. They don't talk about the prevailing theory as to what sleep paralysis even is. They don't? No. And that really bothered me. They they spend every element of the documentary is on what these people who are sufferers think they are, think is going on. And they're like, oh, yeah, there's a prevailing theory as to what it is. And then they just move on. They don't even ever. There's an hour and a half long documentary on a concept and they do not tell you what the prominent theory is that it even is and what its cause is because this movie has an agenda and the agenda is that there's something supernatural. And I think, I think it's just to be spooky because it's a documentary designed to be kind of spooky. There's something connecting each of these people's experiences. And that's because something supernatural is going on. You think their agenda is to show that something supernatural is going on? That's hilarious no, that there's something, there's, because my thought was uh-huh. their agenda was to make these people look crazy, which I really didn't appreciate. So, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of getting into my final thoughts here, but it I wrote that it seems that the filmmakers themselves don't have any real vision for the movie beyond wouldn't it be cool if we acted out their dreams, if we interviewed them about the weird shit they saw and then performed that on a stage and then... Like, what exactly are you trying to say? So I wouldn't say that that is, like, the point of this movie, but that is that is what they're like, hey, this is the cool thing that we can put on the screen is, isn't it interesting to think about how there's a reason why there's similarities between what people see? And they don't dig into an actual psychiatrist view, an actual, like, medical doctor who specializes in brain function. I agree. They They don't get into any of that. They could have brought that in. I agree. Because the prevailing theory is somebody with sleep paralysis is the opposite of a sleepwalker, someone with somnambulism. There is a function in your brain that locks down your body and prevents it from moving and acting out the experiences of your dreams. When that malfunctions, it can go one of two ways. Way one is you do start acting out your dreams, and that's a sleepwalker. Way two is you wake up and that function doesn't turn off, and it still has your body locked down. And it fits very nicely in with the the alternate concept of sleepwalking that it makes a lot of sense. And I want to say I 
I didn't like bury myself in the studies for these, but I want to say they've they've pinpointed the part of the brain that is active. Yeah. And they can see the difference between somebody acting out their dreams and somebody who has sleep paralysis. Mm -hmm. So we know that there is a connection there. And the movie doesn't fucking talk about it at all. Yeah. I do wish they had gotten into the medical side. But I think they didn't because they want you to it's focus about the yeah. on these people. And I really feel like they want you to be like, wow, what a bunch of crazy people. There is this undercurrent. That's really of, shitty. There is this undercurrent of how sleep paralysis has driven these people kind of mad. That's definitely because, again, I think it's just something that the filmmakers – thought would be intriguing and ask questions. But some of these are questions that we have answers to. And they're like, but that wouldn't be interesting if we gave them answers. It's just like in Room 237, where it's a documentary about the conspiracies behind the Shining film. And it Which just, are almost all completely laughable. Right, but <laughs> all the documentary does is just show those theories. And it just lets them... Bury themselves I think you with could, how ridiculous they maybe are. Maybe you could argue that Room 237, I think they're just being objective in Room 237. But in this one, I think because they fully ignore... See, Room 237 is just a bunch of crazy people talking about how cool they think The Shining is. That's really what it is. This movie, though, yeah, it's dealing with an actual medical issue. And I don't think that it... I don't think it's objective anymore it if you cover choose. It with any grace. Yeah, if you choose to just cut out the medical side. Yeah. That is a choice you are making. Oh, exactly. And you're not being objective anymore. Yeah. When you direct a documentary, there is no such thing as an objective documentary. It does not fucking exist. Because you choose what you point the camera at, you choose what makes it in the movie, in what order. You choose the setting, you choose the lighting, you choose all of that, and all of that informs what people are going to take away from it. So there is no such thing as an objective film. The director, the cinematographer, the editor, their influence is all over it, even though they're real people on the other side of that camera. Do you think people should watch this movie, though? I think if you're interested in sleep paralysis, yeah, I, I, I think it's really it, intriguing. I think it's interesting, but I wouldn't go into it thinking like, Oh, I'm going to learn so much because you're no, really not. not. It exposes you to the experience of real people who really deal with it. And in that element, it's very interesting. But what it also does is it exposes those people. It just throws them out on stage and is like, you're going to look ridiculous. And it just pushes them out there and lets them look ridiculous. And I don't think that that dominates the film. But it is definitely there, especially towards the end. But if you're interested in seeing real-life sufferers of this really horrifying condition share their experiences with you and what they think is happening to them, it's very interesting in that respect. And if that's what you want going into this, I think you should definitely see it. It's on Netflix. It's that film with the dude wearing a red mask. And when you find out what that red mask is, it completely recontextualizes <laughs> All right, you can take our advice or leave it, but when we get back, we will talk about 2015's The Nightmare. Laying down to go to sleep, I would feel utterly exhausted, almost as if I had just been drugged. And my eyes sealed shut, my mouth sealed shut, and it's as if everything was shutting down except for my awareness, my consciousness. 
I had zero control over my body. Like, no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't move my arms, my legs. I would try and fight it. It was just so strong. And then you wake up and you're totally paralyzed, you can't move. I began hearing voices and screams and crying. I would hear all the sounds of hell. And that is when the shadow man would come and he would walk disjointed. It's a kind of horror that is worse than like in the movies. You are going to die. Kelsey, can you get us started? How does the nightmare begin? It begins with, I think, a definition of what a nightmare is and how we used to think of it as when you would suffocate when you were sleeping. That's what it originally meant. Right, because demons would be sitting on your chest. Yes. And those demons were nightmares. And then that just turned into any basically negative dream you might have. Mm-hmm. And we get a story by who we find out is Chris, one of the eight subjects of this documentary, about how a news anchor talks to him on the TV. <laughs> we assume this is in a dream. Yes. But they don't say. And yeah, they never come back to it. Because as far as, no, they, they bring it up. They say it up one a, day we're going to be back. They bring yeah. it up a couple of times, this particular dream. But he explains that as a child, as far as he remembers, it happened in regular time. Which is weird. Right. It, it More than likely it was a dream, but that as a child he was unable to recognize that. Slightly less likely, maybe, just maybe, he's schizophrenic. That, or it could have been a waking dream, which we know also exists. Yeah, he got out of the shower, he was wearing a robe, and, he was, and the news was on TV, and then Anchor just turned to the screen, or was already looking at the screen, and just said, hey, Chris... Don't worry, everything's going to be okay, and one day, we're going to be back. Whoever the newscaster was starts kind of getting my attention. Chris. Saying like, hey, Chris. Hey, Chris. Hey, Chris. And it's saying, don't "Don't worry. worry. Everything's going to be okay. And one day, we'll be back. And that's how... Yeah, right? That's how this movie starts. And we go right into the first segment, which is... All the darkness looks alive, and here we get a breakdown of each of the participants, so we're probably going to spend the most time in the movie on this part. Starting off with Jeff R. in St. Louis, Michigan. He's he's a guy who seems like he does a lot of drugs. Uh, <laughs> These you know, are real people. I understand, <laughs> and I know real people like this who do a lot of drugs. <laughs> he describes his first time as happening after he had a conversation with a girl he was seeing about sleep paralysis and night terrors. And then that night, he had his first experience, which to him manifests as a laser light show. He he says it's like flying through a time warp, and they have time warp in capitals on the closed captioning, as if it's the song. And then he says that it happened night after night for weeks, maybe even a month or so. Later on in the movie, he talks about how he was seeing a different girl, and he told her for the first time about his experience. And then she calls him up later going, fuck you, Jeff, what did you do? Now I have it. So that gets into the contagious aspect, which also manifests in a way of when they talk about it a lot, 
you know, maybe it goes away for a while. And if they talk to somebody about it, then it's going to happen again that night, which kind of sucks because you think every person who's a subject of this documentary probably had it again that night if they weren't like Chris in the throes of it currently. Anything to say about Jeff Farr? I wasn't taking the best notes. I don't know if my notes are about him or not. It's difficult because they introduced them to you once in like a one second caption, Chiron, that appears on the screen that's like, hey, this is Jeff R. And then they just don't do it again. (laughs) And so you're like, wait a minute. Was this Jeff? Is this Kareen? Is it Kate? Anna? Like you just, it's hard to keep track of them. You kind of note by their symptoms, really, which one's which. So the symptoms I have written down is that you wake up, you can't move, and you feel a tingling and a buzzing. Yeah, there's like an electrical or a static sensation that you get. One person described it as it's like a physical manifestation of the snow static that you would get on an old TV. Mm -hmm. All right, then we move on to Anna M. in Elizabeth, New Jersey. She describes a knocking on the window and also what felt like a presence trying to remove her soul. But after a while, I started feeling an actual presence. And I would feel this presence right next to me trying to take my soul out. It would torture me at night and I would try and fight it. But I felt I was, my body felt paralyzed. It was just so strong that I would just let go and then I'd feel myself floating in the air, and I could try and see myself, but I would just see a blur. She thought someone had broken in at first. Yeah. And then it felt like, yeah, it felt like they were taking something out of her. It would torture her at night. She would feel herself floating in the air. This happened for many years, including when she was pregnant, at which point she felt like it was trying to take her baby from her. She also described it as one night she felt like she was being raped. Yes, that's a little bit later on in the story. But yeah, she talks about how she was raped, which ties into a sort of haunting trope that appears from time to time. It was in Hell House. The legend of Hell House. Yeah. All right, then we talked to Kate A. from New York, New York. She talks about how she had a bad breakup, at which point she saw a dark figure in her sleep while she was in bed. This is the first mention of a dark figure, but this will come up again and again and again. This is the one that thought somebody broke in. Oh. Then there's Corinne W. from Covington, Kentucky. With the nightlight. Yes. This is the first one we hear about happening to a baby, but it's not the only one. She was in a crib, maybe two, three years old. There was an orangish nightlight, but the whole room turned red. Yes. When she went to sleep, everything would shut down except for her awareness. This is where she describes the electrical vibrations, and then she hears things like Negative yelling, emotions. crying, screaming. Yes, she said anything that you can think of that would relate to negative emotions is what right. she was hearing. And then she saw the shadow man. Three-dimensional shadows that caused vibrations inside of her. Yeah, so the closer they that this shadow man would get, the more she would feel these vibrations. As she described it as him bringing the vibrations with him, and she would hear all the sounds of hell. And then I could feel a vibration. It was definitely an electrical vibration. I began hearing voices and screams and crying all negative emotion and then that is when the shadow man would come toward me and he brought the vibration with him it's as if it was emanating from him and he would come towards me and i would just feel that i would hear all the sounds of 
hell. I don't know any other way to put it. We go on to Stephen P. from Manchester, England. He's the one who first describes knowing that one is coming because you feel a sort of electrical shock or pulse. That's the indicator that it's going to happen that night. Uh, what happens is uh, when you're falling asleep, uh, you'll get an electrical shock through your body just as you're falling asleep. And uh, that indi- that's the usual indication that you're going to have a visit that night. So you already know it's going to happen. The weird thing about that is, is that everyone gets that electrical jolt, every single person, when they fall asleep. Because it's your body shutting down. Right, but you're asleep, so you don't know. Exactly. So when he says that, it's more that I, I think, obviously I'm not a doctor, but what I would assume is happening is it's his body shutting down and him, his consciousness staying awake. So yeah. for him, it means that the, the shadow person is coming. But from a more, from a third party perspective, I think it means... You're awake and you're going to see some right. shit. So you can you can see that his physiological functions and his awareness are out of sync. And this is exactly what we talked about earlier, what we understand sleep paralysis to be. He also saw shadow visitors also describe them as being three-dimensional, three-dimensional shadows. They often have a leader. This is the first hat. description of that, the hat man, who's in charge of these shadow minions. Then we move to Chris C. in New York, New York. He's the boy from earlier who heard the newscaster talking to him. He talks about darkness, but everything is moving. This is where the term all the darkness looks alive comes from. It comes from him. And I remember seeing your traditional darkness. Your, you know, everything kind of exists in shadows. It all looks like it's moving. All the darkness looks alive. Then people come in, and it's as if a person is perpetually backlit. So again, we have this three-dimensional shadow concept coming in. Uh, But they didn't do anything. They just stared at him, the first time at least. Then there's Connie Y. from Costa Mesa, California. We used to live in Costa Mesa. We used to live in Costa Mesa, yeah. We hope to live there again someday. Uh, as she descri- I love that she describes herself, I'm a side sleeper. Like, I yeah. love that she has to make that clear, like, because we all have ways that we sleep. Yeah. But, like, it seems like all of these people are talking about how they sleep on their back. Yeah. And she's, like, the only person that's like, I'm a side sleeper. And I'm like, I am too, Costa Mesa. I am too. Yeah. <laughs> she says her first experience was maybe as far back as five or six then 15 when she was living in Torrance, California. Uh, she felt an evil presence. Torrance? Torrance. She felt an evil presence behind her, and this is where she says she sleeps on her side. That's why she felt it behind her. It was in the middle of the night, but I was wide awake. Like, I was literally wide awake. My eyes were open, but I could now feel this presence, this evil presence behind me lying on my side, like on my left side. I'm a side sleeper. And this was the first reenactment that was no good. Because in this reenactment... You can see... The the shadow man is like putting his face really close to hers and she Mm -hmm. can't move. And he's like behind her, I think. And the way that they filmed it, you could see the folds in the black mask They're wearing a bodysuit, yeah. And it's Uh no good. And no but this is also around the time that they break the illusion and they show that these are all just sets when we see these recreations. I and mean, we knew that. 
Well, obviously we know it's sets, but it's all sets in one big soundstage. Yeah. And they carry the camera up over it. And so you can see all the sets and you can see all this happening at the same time. And that's kind of the motif that they're going for in these recreations. And you see one spirit go from one room to another. And in the middle of that, somebody throws a cape on him. And like a set person throws a cape on him and he goes into the next room. Like it's all a performance. I feel like they don't lean into that hard enough. There's th- th- what I just described to you is about as far as it goes. <laughs> and I'm wondering at that point why even do it at all. <laughs> but whatever. We're not done yet. We still have one last person, and that's Forrest B. Forrest B. from Los Angeles, California, who grew up in rural Vermont. And his first time was also as a baby in a crib. And he associates it with the house. Yeah. Because he says he doesn't have it when he's not at the house. But that well, whenever he, gets, he goes back, he has it. But he also explains a concept. It's not that he only gets it there. It's that he only gets this experience there. That he there are different experiences in different places. And so he associates the experience with whatever place he's in. This one he describes as two anthropomorphic beings. Their skin was like television static. They have – they're tall – and thin, they have long fingers and big smiles, like they're laughing all the time. And they would tickle him and laugh at him. It's terrifying. Which you can think, this is a small child. This probably was the this, this small child's conception of terror, is the feeling of being tickled. I hate being tickled. Yeah, no, I totally get it. I hate being tickled and not being able to do anything about it. I don't care if you tickle me a little bit and then I can be like, stop. Yeah. I don't mind that. <laughs> I don't, I hate the idea of being stuck and not being able to move and being tickled. That's terrifying, and in Mother Goose's Rock and Rhyme, that yeah. is actually a form of torture that they do in that movie, uh-huh. and that always it's scared to be cute. me. Exactly, <laughs> that always scared me. Why don't so, I like getting tickled, Kelsey? Because he's afraid he's going to punch you in the face. I will. I lose control of my limbs when I get tickled, and I flail about, and I really don't want to. People that I let tickle me, basically you. And that's it. <laughs> are the ones I'm most worried about hurting as my limbs flail around. So I'm like, do not tickle me. It's for your own protection. I'm making Chris get his first pedicure. Yeah. For when I've we had get my married. first manicure, but I have not had my first pedicure. And I don't know what we're going to do because <laughs> you cannot kick a lady in the face. I understand. <laughs> I don't know if strapping my limbs down would be worse or better. I don't know. Anyway. The guy, at one point he says pitch silence has a sound. Yeah. It does. Yeah, it's I like a humming. To- yeah. I totally know what he's talking about when he says that. Well, also there's there's electrical currents happening all around you that cause these vibrations that you might pick up as high pitches. Like that's a real thing. You're not going to get that in the middle of the woods. Uh, I hate you'll get when other people, sounds. I hate when people say... Silence is deafening is not, like, a real thing. It certainly is. So there's a thing. We have we have these what we call phone booths at work, right? They're these soundproof booths that fit one to four people. You sit in these seats, and there's a little table in between you. They're soundproof. And the idea is if you need to take a phone call or just have a one-on-one meeting, because we, we work in an open space, you sit in one of these booths. An air conditioning unit kicks in, like a sort of fan. And you're thankful because they before they turn those on, we got in them just to see what it's like. And it's weird when you can't hear anything. There are rooms like the one that they did in The Leftovers where if they are very extremely about as soundproof as you can get, that starts to drive people crazy. 
because when you can't hear anything, you hear everything and you hear like your own heartbeat and stuff like that. And your mind can't process the absence of sound and it, you just start going crazy. Mm-hmm. So, yes, yeah, silence is deafening is a is a thing. And according to his parents, they came bursting in because he was screaming and they described him as panickingly repeating the word Zines. Zines, Zines, Zines! <laughs> but uh, I kept on repeating the word Zines, like Z-I-N-E-S, over and over again in like kind of a panic, like kind of like, <laughs> Zines, 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 you know, like hanging on to them. Uh, and after that, he wouldn't sleep in his crib. Uh, he's the one who made a Halloween costume out of the image that he saw. It's so great. He puts it on. He's like, I don't know. Is it scary? (laughs) (laughs) It's a little scary. It's very scary. It's the one you see on the image for this movie. Well, from what we can see. Right. Everyone gets a different. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. All right. So that is the first section. That's where we get introduced to everyone. He also draws them. Yes. And he's he's frustrated when he draws them. He's like, it it never looks right. But the, Which he, I don't think it ever could. He's you know? the one who drops this down once and they never come back to it ever again. And I think it's either him or Chris about how they think that sleep paralysis is what people are experiencing when they experience alien abductions. They say that they actually say that a couple of times. Maybe it's him and Chris then. It's both of them. But they like don't dive deeper into it. They're just like, oh, I think this is what this is. Yeah. And. I, I think that's a very credible assumption. Look, I'm not here to tell you that aliens do or don't exist, and I'm not here to tell you whether or not you've been abducted or not. But it's difficult for me to not just say you're just dreaming, and unfortunately for you, you are awake while you're dreaming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it just seems like that to me. I have no fucking idea. I could be totally wrong. For all I know, we're all being abducted while we sleep. But from hearing all these different people and their experiences and hearing about how they all have very similar experiences, for a lot of them, they're like, well, there you go. If we're all having the same experience, then it must be, um, it must be real shadow people or it must be real aliens. Or it could be that when we sleep, we all have shared, like, people. We all dream about people. And unfortunately for you, when you're awake while you're asleep, it manifests in this way. Right. And on top of that, when you're in a room and it's quiet and maybe you're a little afraid, just a little afraid, you start to, like, hear things and you start to see things that aren't really there. We all know this happens. We all know this exists. Now imagine you're locked into place, you can't move, and you're terrified. Every shadow is going to look like a person. And you hear something behind you, but you can't turn around and look. You're going to think that some being is behind you. And you're going to feel a sense of dread. I'm not surprised that they all see similar things because that is the way the human mind works. Mm Mm-hmm. It just is. And the only person, I think, the only person in all of this, aside from Connie, who has a completely different explanation for this, that says, hey, maybe these beings that we're seeing are real, is Forrest. Because he has a story he tells later that implies heavily that they're real beings. And we'll get to that a little bit later. So the next segment is called It's a Thing. It talks about 
getting treatment, looking it up on the internet. They get normal CAT scans, but the EEG had abnormal results. And then they just get a dismissal. It's stress. Change your life. That's what's causing this. It's essentially the doctor's equivalent of, I don't know. Yep. Oh, do you have stress in your life? Oh, then that's it. Like, everyone has stress in their life, asshole. <laughs> like, that's not good enough. And I can understand how that would be really, really upsetting as somebody who's suffering from something like this and then being just told, well, you got to change your life to be less stressful. When I go to sleep at night, I see terrible things. What am I supposed to do about that? That is the cause of my stress. The next section is sometimes they come back. And this is where we get some of the scarier dreams. Yes. So obsessing on it causes it to happen, kind of like what we said, right? Uh, you telling someone about it causes it to happen. Uh, some of the people that are interviewed talk about it happening every single night. Forrest talks about how he heard voices. And this is, again, voices are associated with the place where he is. And they'd say things like, you just won, when he was a kid, you just won the giant insect of the month club. We're sending the first shipment up to your room right now. Hey, Forrest. Hey, Forrest. You just won the um, giant insect of the month club. Insect of the month club. We're sending your first prize up to your bedroom right now. Then a tarantula, not an insect, jumps on the screen. Terrified, Kelsey. <laughs> yeah, I definitely screamed and jumped. I mean, that's the kind of dream I had when I was a kid. That's the kind of shit I would have nightmares about. Yeah? Yeah. Jeff describes an out-of-body experience where he gets a phone call. Oh, and he sits horrible. up And he's walking down the hallway through his house because all he's getting is static. And then he finally makes it into his living room, about the farthest place from his bedroom. And then he hears the person say, do me a favor. And he's like, what's the favor? And then he's just, let me in. Hello, I, I was wondering if you could do me a favor. Do me a favor. What kind of favor? Let me in. Yeah, it was really scary. And then everything in the room just explodes, and he gets teleported back into his body, which was still sleeping in bed. Terrifying. This is when a lot of people started to associate what they experienced with movies. Yeah, this is the next section, screen memories. One girl whose mother also experiences sleep paralysis, they talked about how they saw a nightmare on Elm Street, and they were like, oh my god, it's like they made a movie about sleep paralysis. Right, listen to our episode on the first nightmare on Elm Street, and we'll get into the sleeping sickness, where people die if they fall asleep, they're terrified to go to sleep, and they die in their sleep. At least one person in this movie says that what's probably happening in those scenarios is extreme cases of the sleep paralysis mixed with night terrors. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, Communion, which is a movie with Christopher Walken, the guy in the dancing video. <laughs> the guy in the dancing video. <laughs> and it's like the, it was the movie Communion with, um, what's his face? The guy who was in the dancing video. I don't know. But Christopher Walken. Yeah, exactly. They also mentioned. Yeah, I've never heard of Communion. Neither have I. But now I'm interested. Me too. They also mention Insidious and the lipstick face demon. Before you realize he's a lipstick face demon, you see him as like a shadow. With long fingers. Uh -huh. Yeah. And then they also bring up Jacob's Ladder. 
Yeah. Which I also fully understand. With the movements, they describe the movements that was shaking of the head at Jacob's Ladder as a feeling that they actually have on occasion. Uh, And Natural Born Killers, one of the people describes just this split second in a hallucinatory scene in Natural Born Killers where there's this like shadow man that that the camera passes by and and the person who saw it is like, that's him. That's the thing. Whoever designed that shot probably has sleep paralysis. Or it's possible that we're just afraid of shadows as humans. Exactly. Exactly. This is my point. I think a lot of times when it comes to this sort of thing, people jump to conclusions and they don't account for the fact that maybe what they interpret, what they see as has to do with their own internal biases, what they're expecting to see and what they're afraid of. And then they go, no, that was real. How many times do you see something and then it turns out that you're mistaken? You see a person. And then you're like, hey, and then they're like, who are you? You're like, no. Okay, I guess I was wrong, but I could have sworn you were somebody I know. Like, you're wrong sometimes. Mm -hmm. And you bring a lot of your own shit to your interpretations of things. And there's just common ways that brains function. So I think there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for all of this. And it fucking sucks if you have it. Mm -hmm. But I think it's maybe going a little bit too far to ascribe it to anything greater than that. Like Connie does later on. This is when a guy, one of the guys, I can't remember his name. He seems to be the most troubled by the situation. Yeah. And he explains, you know, I think I've been abducted by aliens. And for a while, he said, if I had a TV on... Yes, this is the next segment, Mechanisms of Avoidance. If I had a TV on, it would stop happening. But that would only last for a little while. Then he needed to get another TV. And so then he he describes it as having tons and tons of televisions in his room. And he realized this is really unhealthy. And it only works for so long. He said it wasn't a functioning solution. So I had to stop. And then when he stopped, the paralysis just got more elaborate. Mm -hmm. And he described it as evolving until it finds you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's horrible. It it sounds like it is a horrible thing yeah. to have to deal with. I've had, I've experienced sleep paralysis on the most minor of levels. I've woken up before my before my body has woken up, and that is a scary couple of moments. I can't imagine. It's it's very scary. But that's only happened to me a handful of times, and I've never seen anything. I just have that feeling of. I am awake and I can't move my body. Yeah. So I can't imagine what having those horrible nightmares while having that sleep paralysis. That must be awful. And if you've seen The Haunting of Hill House, that girl is having sleep paralysis. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's her husband who gets her out of it by – they have a mantra – they work together. He soothes her. He gets her mind in the right headspace because the problem, the real, real problem with sleep paralysis isn't the paralysis. It's the stress. It's how you panic and you freak out. And that's what makes the experience so awful because it only compounds upon itself. And so with somebody there who's with you and knows what's happening and has the ability to level you out and keep you calm, you can get through it easier. Kind of like with asthma and signs. You know, he had to coach him through that session so he could calm down because you can't breathe and then you panic, which makes it even harder to breathe. This is similar to that. But I think 
haunting of Hill House is damaging. Because then it turns into it's a real thing? Yes. Well, I don't think it's damaging necessarily to be like, hey, here's a real life scenario. What if it was ghosts? I think it's damaging for people like this. If they believe it. Who are already having trouble enough disassociating. Well, that's why... That's why I'm putting this – I'm putting sleep paralysis as a content warning because, like we said, discussing it, thinking about it causes it to happen. So we want to make sure that if you are a sufferer of sleep paralysis, you know going into this episode, we're going to be talking about it. I don't know. I just I, – I really loved Haunting of Hill House except for the ending, but that's my own personal preference. But I really loved it. But now that I've seen this documentary, I feel like – there are just certain things that you shouldn't say are really happening when other people are really suffering from this. I don't know. I think that might be an extreme reaction to that because there are people who are suffering from everything. That's the purpose of content warnings. It's why I put content warnings on the episode. If you have a topic that's going to cause you distress and it's not worth exposing yourself to something over, then you should know about it ahead of time. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to let you know ahead of time. And it's for it's in everyone's best interest. Maybe knowing ahead of time that this is, hey, we're going to talk about what if sleep paralysis was some spooky shit. <laughs> that would be beneficial. But I don't think that means that now we can no longer talk about a subject. It's just for those people who might be negatively affected by this, you should know we're going to discuss it. But then we get to now it hurts. Which is the next segment. This is where Anna talks about her having the sensation of being raped, which is, oh, Jesus. It was just that feeling, and then it was just gone. And then Chris talks about a claw machine grabbing his, quote, fucking dick. The worst one is when it's around my fucking dick. Yeah, and he says it's literally painful, and he wakes up and he's still in pain. And this is the first experience with pain. If I had to describe it, picture like a claw machine game. You know, three, three little things. And that's when the pain starts coming. The worst one is when it's around like, you know, by, you know, fucking dick. And I still felt the pain after I woke up. Forrest hears an accusation of of being caught masturbating. Chris's girlfriend, who he's not with anymore, is now ex-girlfriend, she woke up and she experienced sleep paralysis. And what she saw was a cat or a feline of some sort sitting on Chris's chest and it has red eyes, which matches the description of one of the shadow men that follows him having red eyes. It also matches historical accounts of the nightmare which are these demons that would sit on your chest. They would look like small animals, and they would have red eyes and sharp teeth and claws. I can say from experience that cats really do sit on your chest. Yes. it's They like the heat. Yeah. They like the feeling of the vibration. They mm-hmm. love hearing your heartbeat. I've ha- I've woken up to my cat, and in my dream, I was being choked to death. You know how much Lavinia... Likes to sleep on my chest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean, this this was Max, and he was like right up on my throat. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was terrifying. Well, this is why you keep cats out of kids' <laughs> rooms, aside from the like the urine, which can uh, really harm respiratory systems of of young children. But also, they will just sit on the baby and then suffocate the baby. 
and it's not okay. So keep cats away from your babies, people. Don't get rid of the cat. No. Just, just don't put them in the same room. Exactly. <laughs> you skipped some things. One of them describes it as being like a crazy angular dream world. One describes one talking to him and him saying, you That's know forced. who I am. Mm-hmm. And how like it was like this really giant tall dude with like crazy orange hair. And he said that. Oh, yeah, that's either Forrest or Chris. I can't remember which one. He'll come back every once in a while. And sometimes he'll be a different being. But he knows it's him. Because he always says, you know who I am. Yeah. And the, the dude who imagines the claw coming after him and stabbing at him. He said after that is when he started to question his existence. Because it's just like, well, at this point now. What's the point? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to deal with this for every night for the rest of my life. And it's causing him stress and pain and he's tired all the time. And it's just like, how long can you handle this? Right. Yeah. So then we get into figuring this out, which is a section all about where they share their theories. This is where they talk about this is what they think alien abductions are or, you know, what have you. It's not a very long section and they don't go into detail and they just kind of drift over it. And it's one of my complaints about this documentary is it doesn't do a very good job of deeply exploring the concept. It's just people telling their stories, which could be evocative. But why aren't we going deeper into this? It's weird. The next section is never before, never again. This is where Anna, whose mother also suffered from sleep paralysis and who eventually passed away, comes and visits her, her her mom comes and visits her and lays in bed behind her. And as, as uh, opposed to where she has these senses of an evil presence, she has this feeling of love and her mom just kind of holds her and that this happened a couple of times. And this is where I'm talking about. It's where your headspace is. It's what you're bringing to it. And if that's the experience that you're bringing to it and it becomes a positive experience, she had less and less negative experiences. Now she attributes this to spiritual. It's a spiritual thing, but yeah, it's her. It's her mother's spirit, and that keeps the evil spirits away. And now she has sleep paralysis less. So maybe the doctor saying you're stressed, change your life, maybe not be the best response, but maybe they're not wrong. Mm-hmm. Stephen talks about literally having a fight with the shadow men during an out of body experience. And he grappled with them. And I can't remember if he says it slowed down or stopped after that. This is where we see that Shadow Man cross between bedroom sets, gets a cloak thrown on him, and then starts the next scene as the person is narrating it. Uh, And Connie talks about how she became Christian as a result because during one of her sleep paralysis episodes, she was able to just eke out uh, Jesus's name. And that made it stop. And she never got it again. She became Christian as a result, which is... Perfectly fine, but again, I'm thinking, okay, now you think you have a working, functioning, mental response to this that makes it stop. Because, again, you're changing your mental state. Just like if you're in a great mood and it's dark and you're not scared and you hear a noise behind you, you don't freak out and think somebody's broken in. But if you're scared, you're lonely, and it's dark, and you hear a noise behind you, the same noise, and now it's an intruder or some evil spirit or whatever, it's all... Just your mind Mm -hmm. interpreting this. But Connie, as a result, changed her entire life. She joined the church. She found a nice guy and got married and had kids. And her life completely turned around and she never got it again. I'm really worried she got it again after this interview. I hope she didn't. Well, that that kind of bothered me because she said, 
I don't like thinking about it. I don't like listening about like to it. Yeah, she does. That's she has a past. YouTube channel and she would talk about it. And now people will share their experiences with her. And now she just doesn't read them anymore because it makes it worse for her. And so now she she just avoids the topic altogether. And then why are you in this puts documentary? her faith in Jesus? And yeah, well, you know, it's her opportunity to get the, the biggest impact and share her story with the widest number of people. But now you're talking about it again. So I'm curious. They don't talk about anything that happens after the documentary, I would have liked just like a quick rehash of each of the people. Mm-hmm. Has anything happened since we filmed this? Nope, you don't get that. One of them talks about how they now believe that there's another world. So and how this these is, people are coming from that other world. This is Final Destinations. This is the last segment of the movie. Forrest tells a story about being in the woods with his hippie, druggy girlfriend. They're on like shrooms or something. And... They're in the woods, and the girlfriend just builds a stone circle. And they're like, we're going to talk to these other beings that are in the world. And it's all this hippie druggy stuff. And then she closes her eyes. But Forrest, with his eyes open, sees this blue figure walking forward. And his girlfriend is like, oh, she's blue, she says. He's like, how did she know what I was seeing? And knew the figure was there, and knew the figure... And was talking to the figure and then says to Forrest, she says not to worry about the demons behind you. And she's like, oh, she's blue. She said she's blue. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about this. And here's here's my girlfriend and she's just like laughing a lot. Like, oh, she's saying such the funniest things. Like, just crazy. It's really crazy and weird. And she goes, oh, she says says not to be worried about about the demons demons behind you. (laughs) And, And I was like, what? And I like turned around. And I saw them, that same face, uh, the face that people see when they're abducted by aliens, the face that I saw as a, as a small child. Because it wasn't like linguistic, I didn't hear anybody talking to me, but I heard, like felt a thought in my head, something external, and it was all about how um, uh, fear empowers bad things. He realizes in that moment that it's fear that gives the bad things power. Oh, look, how this Nightmare. folds directly into both... Our personal theories on what these are and A Nightmare on Elm Street. Also, I'm sure him and his girlfriend have had conversations about these demons before. So it's not like she's being told by some mysterious being that he can also see that there are demons that he deals with. She already knew ahead of time there are demons that he dealt with. Because they're on drugs. (laughs) Yeah. uh Uh-huh. Chris tells a story about thinking the sleep paralysis has, in his words, finally fucked him. Uh, There's this time where he felt like uh, he's in a coma. And there was just nothing. Uh, He still keeps getting it and it keeps getting worse. And he knows that eventually it will kill him. But at this point, he's become comfortable with that. And it's going to probably just keep getting worse. And I truly believe that one day it will be the reason why, like, one day I don't wake up. I don't breathe. I can't control the breathing. And it's done. But I'm kind of ready for that now. You know, I'm ready for that to be, you know just kind of what happens to me. And it's also made me feel very comfortable with the idea. Like, if something's happening that's more than I'm just crazy, then something's happening. Yeah, a lot of them say that. They're like, if I ever had to imagine what death feels like... It would be better than what I'm going through right now. Or that that is what it will feel like. Uh Just being stuck in space and not being able to move, which I think is what we're all most terrified of. Right. I think that's even more scary than being tortured for the rest of your life in hell, 
because at least you'd be aware of things as opposed to just being a floating consciousness. I mean, this is this is my thoughts on on death right here. Right. Like I see things from my eyes, uh, solipsistic. That's the way I consume the universe and that's the way I experience things. And everyone else has the same sort of thing. It's just hard to imagine that everyone else has this behind their eyes. Right, thinking the same things, having the same thoughts, having the same perspective, but in a different body. Why is it that this body is the one that I experience? I don't know. And so when I die, will I be able to experience anything? And if I can't experience anything, if my awareness disappears, it's nothing, but I can't experience it anyway. So what happens to the world? It keeps on going. The only way I know the world exists is what I can see and what I experience and what's going on behind these eyes. So if that goes away, what is existence at that point? Is that weird? No, I I completely understand. My own personal thought is that when we die, it's just like going to sleep. Then you're just gone. Yeah. But I really fucking hope that we do not become consciousnesses just floating yeah that sounds like the worst thing uh, in the world. it really does <laughs> all right kelsey anything else to say about the movie we've worked through the entire film i just back. i don't want to be disrespectful in any way not at all this has to be absolutely horrible i can't even imagine what this would be like and i don't blame you for coming up with your own theories and whatever works for you exactly I'm totally fine with that but at the end of the day i think we're all trying to find a way to validate the shit that we go through. Mm-hmm. Rationalize our experiences. And I think that's what's happening here. I don't personally believe that they are being abducted by aliens or that there's another world that people are coming from mm-hmm. or that there's shadow people among us. This is just how your fear manifests itself when you're half asleep. But again, I can't imagine what you've gone through it's for suck. years and years and years. I imagine I would go insane very quickly if it ever happened to me. And I don't want to be disrespectful and say that because for all I know, you could be totally right. For all I know, there could be shadow beings around us. Right. Mm-hmm. So personally, I feel you're that you're just validating it, but I don't know. And it really sucks to me because I'm a really heavy sleeper. Did we talk about this in the episode earlier? I can't. Or did we talk about it personally? I don't know. I'm a really heavy sleeper. Yes, you if, are. If if Kelsey had sleep paralysis, I would never know. <laughs> and it terrifies me to think that she might be in one of the scariest moments in her entire life, inches away from me, and I wouldn't have any idea and I wouldn't be able to be there for her. And that freaks me out. Don't worry, sweetie. It hasn't happened in many years. Okay. All right. <laughs> so what do you think the movie got on Rotten Tomatoes? Um, 89? 69. Oh, okay. 68 on Metacritic. The Rotten Tomatoes consensus says, part documentary, part thriller, the nightmare works just well enough in both respects to deliver a uniquely disturbing viewing experience. It is unique. I also think it's kind of a wasted opportunity. I agree. I think that they could have done a lot more with it. A lot more. And it's a bummer that they didn't. They didn't go into the perspectives of people who study this stuff. They didn't go into in-depth, really, about what their own personal theories are. Uh, It was kind of just, hey, let's put these experiences on display, and isn't this nuts? And that's kind of all it was. And 
there's a lot more that they could have done with it, and they didn't. And that's kind of a bummer. Mm-hmm. I guessed 89 because I would have guessed that people that watch this thought it was fascinating would have or... would have been wanting to see something like this yeah. but then then we talk about it right now and i'm like oh i wanted to see this really bad and then yeah it was kind of disappointing, disappointing so yeah. overrated or underrated they gave a 69 69 69 dudes it's pretty damn close i was thinking of giving it a 68 i was gonna give it a 70 uh, originally after our conversation i can totally see where your 68 comes from I, I it almost feels like giving it that seven as opposed to like a 69 or a 68. It's like elevating it a little bit more. And I was really disappointed in it. I was too. So was it's not that it's a bad film. I was just disappointed that I didn't get more. So I'll do the same. I'll, I'll drop it down to a 68. All right, Kelsey, that is 2015's The Nightmare, thus ending our Nightmare Week here on Pod Cemetery. But what are we watching next week? Next week is a recommendation week. Yeah. And this recommendation comes to us from the first person who ever gave us a recommendation. Yes. He wanted us to see, he's the one that got us to see Fright Night. Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay. I'm so sorry, Brian. That I kind of forgot that you said another one. <laughs> We're finally back to it. We will be watching Raw Head Rex. Yes. That was his recommendation. And from what I read about it, it is about a dude who goes after a demon. In so Ireland. I was like, hey, that's a good excuse to watch Constantine. Yeah, because... Not a lot of good excuses to watch Constantine in the context of this show, because people will put it down as like an action-adventure movie, but it all takes place surrounding this sort of demon world and transporting to hell, and there's Satan, and like, yeah, uh-huh, this is a horror action-adventure, mm-hmm. and I think it definitely qualifies. I'm a big fan of Constantine in comic books, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, what Neil Gaiman did with Constantine, what tons of writers have have written for Constantine and the Hellblazer series. Garth Ennis famously wrote for Hellblazer for almost a decade in the 90s. Warren Ellis, after that for a couple of years, Brian Azzarello. Constantine is so awesome, and there's a lot you can do with him. And... I really like this movie, <laughs> so I'm excited we're going to do it. And coupling that with Raw Head Rex about a man trying to take down a demon. So I'm excited for next one. Thank you very much, Brian, for giving us Raw Head Rex. Before you had recommended it, I had only a vague awareness of that name. I had no idea what it was, what the movie was, or anything. So I'm really intrigued to be exposed to this So. Thank you, Brian. Really excited for next week. Until then, you can always reach us at our website, podcemetery.com, and you can view all the movies and episodes we've ever had on the show. Don't forget to rate and review in your podcatcher of choice. Five-star written reviews are enormously helpful, but more helpful than that is sharing us with your friends, and more helpful than that is listening in the GD first place. Thank you so very much. We love every single one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. Before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Don't fall asleep. 
Hello, my name is Chris. We didn't do quiet time. Yeah, we did. My name is Kelsey. <laughs> Start that over again. He got more blood on the Bronco. <laughs> I don't know why that line just sticks in my head. <laughs> OJ left more blood on the Bronco. The fuck are you talking about? You don't remember that where he turns into a snake, but it's all flesh colored and shit. And oh, so it looks like a giant yes, penis. It's not a penis. It's a <laughs> snake. <laughs> But yes, now I can't unsee that. <laughs> God damn it. Weird. Weird, Weird science. science. Smoothie. Nom, nom, nom. Okay. Do you remember last time when we got started and you were like, wait, aren't we going to do quiet time? I'm like, we just did it. <laughs> Remember that? No. You remember? Kind of. You remember? Kind of. Um, um. Did you? Oh, we also didn't talk about how one of them had a dream that one of them, one of the shadow people, was like saying that you just came all over your mother's sheets, you pervert. That was Forrest getting the masturbation accusation. Ah, oh, yes. Yeah. Jesus. 